Al Jazeera podcast. Curbing migration, the U.S. is pressing Mexico to do more to stem the flow of migrants to the border. Thousands try to make it to America every day. But can Mexico alone stop them? And how much of a political nightmare is migration for Joe Biden? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now, all of them joining us from the United States. And Rebecca Wolf is in New York City. She's a senior advocacy strategist at the American Immigration Council. That's a non-profit organization. In Washington, D.C., we have immigration attorney Leon Fresco. He formerly served as the deputy assistant attorney general in charge of immigration at the U.S. Justice Department. And Maureen Meyer is joining us from Phoenix, Arizona. She's the vice president for programs at the Washington Office on Latin America, a human rights advocacy organization. A very warm welcome to all of you. Maureen, could we start with you telling us what is the situation at the border? Because we have some people saying that it's close to breaking point with certain transit crossing points having to close because uh, officers, border officers are being redeployed elsewhere to cope with an influx of migrants. I mean, it sounded quite chaotic and panicky. What is the actual situation? I think what we're seeing is certainly numbers of migrants crossing daily, as was commented previously, of almost historic levels and a continuously high number every day, which is really taxing resources, both from the U.S. officials, from Border Patrol and CBP, as well as the local communities that are working to support those migrants that are literally waiting sometimes for days to be picked up by U.S. agents, oftentimes in very remote parts of the border. It is, even though it's it's the southwest border, it can get very cold at night. And so we have very vulnerable people that continually cross every day and many times are simply stuck waiting with very little resources to have their chance to present themselves before U.S. officials and mostly ask for protection. Rebecca, why are we seeing these historic levels of num- of people trying to get into the United States now? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. And, and your previous, um, at, the, at the top of this report, you, you, your reporter sort of alluded to some of them. You know, there are a lot of people who are coming and hearing rumors about the political situation in the United States as we enter an election year and as we hear uh, various um you know, people who are running for president to, to talking about migrants as though they're political pawns. And so people are afraid that there are going to be even more draconian um, policies put in place at our southern border and so are, are feeling a renewed sense of urgency, which is probably um, at least contributing to to the increased numbers of, of people uh, crossing and attempting to cross um, in, in the previous month. Leon, um, Rebecca says more draconian policies put in, may be put in place in the future. Just talk us through what happens right now when someone turns up at the border, either undocumented, seeking asylum. What happens? What's the process? Well, the government first needs to decide whether to place them into what is something called expedited removal, which is what happens when you show up at the border without any documentation to prove that you're allowed to be in the United States. If the government puts them in expedited removal, they can literally do what those words say, expedited removal, unless you give a defense to expedited removal, which is asylum, which is that you're going to be persecuted in your home country. At that point, the person then has a burden 
to show that they have a fear. And depending on how they enter the United States, if it's their second time or they have some problem, they either have to show what's called a credible fear, which is a lower standard, or a reasonable fear, which is a higher standard. But in any case, a fear of persecution. And if they can establish that, then they are allowed to remain in the United States. But sometimes so many people show up at one time that they can't even do any of this. And they just let the people in uh, and tell them to check in with ICE later at a future location. And in that situation, you aren't even put into any of that burden. And so both of those things happen at the same time, because you actually need a significant amount of detention space to be able to do this first process. So depending on where you go and what you show up and how many people show up, you might not even get that first scrutiny, which people are sometimes saying isn't even sufficient scrutiny. Okay, Rebecca, I can see you're shaking your head there. What, what, why, why are you shaking your head? What do you not agree with there? Well, I think that there's sort of um, a, a, mis a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that our system works and, and sort of some, some framing that needs to be addressed. And one is this idea that people are simply let in. That is not the case. Um, no one is just let into the United States without any kind of um, either or both a legal process and a, a method of, of as, as um, my, my colleague said, a method of checking in. We right now have a system in which people who are let in, quote unquote, um, are put on um, various forms of surveillance, including an app that they are that are, they are instructed to use on their phone that can be tracked of where they are in the United States. Um, additionally, they are put into the system of, of removal process. So they are given um, what's called a notice to appear, and they are told that they need to come uh, to court in order to to um, uh, defend their their um, claim for asylum. The, the CBP officers that encounter people at the border are required to ask under their own guidance whether or not someone fears return to their home country. That is regardless of whether the person is put in expedited removal or not. And so CBP is turning back uh, thousands of people all the time, uh, including many reports say people who are are in fact saying that they fear um, return to home country, but are being turned back anyway. And and so what we are talking about is, is a lack of resources throughout the system, not just at the border, and certainly not just for enforcement purposes, law enforcement purposes, but but resources needed at the level of asylum officers, resources needed at the level of the immigration courts. That's where we should be focused focusing rather than a lot of the conversation, which has been about simply preventing people from coming in the first place. OK. Maureen, what, what percentage, roughly, would you say, of people who arrive at the border manage to show that they have credible fear and are allowed to proceed through the system? You know, that's um, an interesting question because, in part, how many people are able to access protection in the United States and get asylum is also due to how many get access to legal counsel. As was highlighted, that can be very difficult, especially if you have a, a quick hearing, but also there's um, not enough lawyers right now to support the number of asylum seekers in the United States. I think the recent numbers, I want to say a little bit under half of the people mm. are gaining access to protection. But that means that all of those people, if they had been quickly sent home without the chance to seek protection, could be sent back to torture, death, other forms of persecution. And so I think the, the idea is the system should be erring on the side of protection 
that these are people in need and not trying to deter people or to simply send them back. And I wanted to highlight, I think, what, what Rebecca said about what's happening at the border. A lot of these people are crossing so far in the remote parts of the border because the Biden administration has tried to channel people through the ports of entry through CBP-1 app, which is an mm. app that you can you need to use to get an appointment. But there are only 1,450 appointments a day. It is a very tricky app. It's only available in three languages. Um, and there is simply not enough appointments for the number of people that need to request asylum. And so they're, they're being, they feel like they're forced after sometimes months of waiting. It can take seven months, eight months to actually get an appointment. They're desperate. And that's why you also see people crossing in between the ports of entry and in these remote areas, because simply there aren't enough appointments available and there's not enough infrastructure at the ports to be receiving the number of people that would like to enter every day and request protection. Leon, to what extent do you agree that the situation could be mitigated by funneling more resources into the system, more border patrol, more immigration judges, more money, more people, more personnel to process people in a faster way? Because there is a fear as well, isn't there, from certain segments of the US that if you make the process easier and faster, they're simply going to encourage more people to come. I think there's two different questions. So one question is, how can you make the system to render an adjudication as quickly as possible more efficient? And that answer is all of the resources. A second question is, do we want the system to continue in the way it's operating today? And so that's the political debate that's happening today. Mm. There's, I think, half of the Congress probably would reject the premise, and I'm not giving a personal opinion, I'm just trying sure. to lay out the facts. Half of the Congress would probably reject the opinion that more resources to expedite the admission of more people into the United States to allow them to wait in the United States while their case is pending is desirable. They don't want that. They want people excluded from the United States until such time as they can establish their claim. And some people don't even want them to be able to ever establish an asylum claim. So that's the, the sort of furthest extreme. And then I think you're hearing a position uh, that's at the other end, which is, look, if we just can get people in as quickly as possible and process them, then that's the solution to the problem. Well, that's the solution to the problem of backlogs, but it's not the solution to the problem of, are you trying to have immigration curtailed in some number? And so that's, it just depends what problem you're trying to solve for. Rebecca, it seems that the Biden administration is currently focusing on the deterrent solution or what it considers to be the solution. We've just had Secretary of State Blinken in Mexico requesting that Mexico do more to stop people reaching the US-Mexico border. What do you make of that? Well, I think that, you know, um, recent and, and distant history has shown that deterrence does not work. Um, I, I think that there's it's important for, for your audience to understand that the U.S. has an obligation under its own laws to allow people to seek asylum in the United States. People's opinions or political positions in Congress can't usurp that obligation. And it's not just under uh, U.S. law, but it's also under international law. And so sort of it, while we can talk about the politics of it, we need to understand that that underlying um, 
uh, premise is that people have a right to seek asylum in the United States if they have uh, the basis for it. And so then the, the real only question is, is how do we assess that um, appropriately and humanely um, assess people's people's claims for asylum? Um, in terms of uh, President Biden's um, current sort of objective to get the Mexican government more involved. You know, we were just on a delegation uh, to a various points along the border and also inside Mexico and talked to dozens of, of migrants who are in exactly the situation that Maureen described of waiting on that side for those appointments. And we we know, not just anecdotally from, from our experience, but from other reporting, other human rights organizations, that those deterrence um, policies are, first of all, currently already in place. The Mexican government and Mexican police across Mexico, so through the entire area of Mexico, are turning back migrants, forcing them into other areas of Mexico and, and, and attempting to keep them out of Mexico altogether. Even people who have appointments or other permission to come into the United States already. So the idea that we would rely on the Mexican government and Mexican um, law enforcement to enforce those policies should be concerning to anyone who cares about human rights. But it's also important to, to understand, again, that this is not simply about whether or not we can keep people out or in. It's about a, a, um, a process of allowing people and, and, and um, assessing mm. whether or not people can come in, at, at, um, in in a way that allows our system in the United States to work. But the trouble is, is that this is a big like political liability for Biden, isn't it? I mean, Maureen, we've got an election year. We've got, again, Republican pressure in Congress. How much more can Biden withstand these numbers without being seen to do something? I mean, I think that was part of the, the, the visit that, that we saw yesterday of Secretaries Blinken and Mayorkas to Mexico was trying to show that they are working to address the issue. That was also part of the budget request. The, the debate isn't just... How do we unfortunately lower the bar for asylum, but also in that budget packet was additional resources for more agents at the borders and more, more resources to address what's happening. I think it is a political um, liability. It's very difficult right now for the Biden administration. Republicans have continuously used the border and immigration as, as, as a weapon in, in political campaigning. We are seeing several Democrat-led Local governments also pushing back because of the number of migrants that they're seeing in their communities. But I think this is more a, a management issue than the, how many people should we let into the country? How do we, as, a, as the United States government, how does the U.S. government work to better coordinate with state, local, and the federal government on how do you process people in a more effective way? Where can people be located in the country? How do you provide yeah. resources to local communities? That's not just, it's, it's one part housing and immediate services, but also the legal services so people can process their asylum cases and actually start to work after the, the six month period. So it's a lot that could be done domestically, but I think it's also important to highlight um, that the Biden administration has worked to address this as a regional issue. It has invested $2.4 billion in humanitarian assistance in the past two years, in large part to address migration flows and access to protection. This is a regional phenomenon. There are 6.5 million Venezuelans living throughout Latin America, including 2.8 million in Colombia alone. So I think this is something that the administration and many governments in the region, including Mexico, are trying to address as a regional as well as you know worldwide phenomenon that does require responses, not just from the U.S. government, but commitments from governments 
across the, the board on what they can be doing to support migrants and asylum seekers. Um, that I think is something that we need to address. And how do we address the root causes of why mm. so many people are being forced to, to flee their home countries? Leon, this is something that uh, the Mexican president, Lopez Obrador, raised with uh, Secretary Blinken. He wanted the US to engage more with Cuba and Venezuela to consider lifting sanctions, to invest in more development projects. But at this stage of the game, in an election year, how interested is Joe Biden in investing in long-term solutions? Well, I think there's several problems. One, as you said, a quick fix is needed if electoral politics is your solution. And when you're talking about the GDP differences of Venezuela and Cuba and the United States, it would take you decades to make it anywhere near a place where it would not be desirable to leave Cuba or Venezuela and enter the United States. I mean, mm. that's not realistic for for decades to come. And I think the real question is, what are you doing for this new phenomenon of people arriving at the United States with literally no place to go and no plan for what to do when they arrive here? That's the big problem. That's something that is quite new in the last few decades of migration in the United States, where people are completely planless when they arrive. And quite frankly, the system in that situation is meant to have an adjudication, is the person a flight risk or are they dangerous? And the point is, if they don't have an address, if they don't have anyone that's fixed in an address that can care for that person and keep them responsibly through the proceedings, the true answer is they need to be in a federal facility of some kind. If you don't want to be a detention facility, we have to figure out humane places, but they need to be in a place where we know where the person is and get their case done as quickly as possible and not but be Leon, releasing who, them who pays into for Chicago, that? Who New pays York to keep them in well, federal facilities? Well, that does need to be the federal government. But the point is, right now, that cost is being put into Chicago, New York, uh, Philadelphia, et cetera. And those mayors are saying, we can't pay this anymore. We're going to, our budgets are about to go bankrupt. And so the point is, the true solution is this is a federal government problem. The federal government needs to pay to keep people in a, in a facility to adjudicate their case as quickly as possible and not release them into these cities where then they go into a six, seven-year backlog. Okay, I can see Rebecca and Maureen both shaking your heads there. Rebecca, uh, your response to the federal facility solution. Well, what, what um, he is suggesting is mass detention of, of asylum seekers, and that is very clearly um, not a solution for a number of reasons. So one is a solution is, you know, something that, that he himself pointed out, which is that we don't have the detention space to do that. And simply pouring more money into federal jails and federal prisons, uh, we can call them detention centers, but that's what they are, um, is something that the Biden administration themselves promised not to do during their previous election um, season. And so I, I think that what we need to be focused on, though, it, it, it is correct that we need to be um, di directing resources towards the cities and communities that are hosting um, these asylum seekers, whether that's Chicago and New York or the border cities that have been handling um, num huge numbers of people for decades. And the idea that that the these larger, more powerful cities um, have gotten the attention of of the federal government and and the public um, is is exactly what the Republicans in those border states like Texas have um, designed. They are 
uh, intentionally creating crises in places like Chicago and New York by busing people from Texas there. That is an issue of resources, as Maureen pointed out, resources for legal services in addition to resources um, and social uh, resources such as housing. But fundamentally, what, what we're talking about, this idea that people are sitting um, and, and disappearing into the interior of the United States is simply not correct. That is not what is happening. There is a backlog of, of how long people are waiting for their cases to be adjudicated. That is due to a lack of resources in our immigration court system. Um, and the solution there is to adjudicate those cases more quickly, because then you have a clear answer. Are those people um, uh, eligible for asylum? Should they be granted asylum or should they be um, removed? Should they be someone who, who should be put into our, our removal uh, process? But mm. that can't happen until the cases are adjudicated. And Maureen, what, what is the situation for people who are in the system waiting for their cases? Are they allowed to work? To what extent are they able to help themselves? So I mean, two things here. One, it's also um, we cannot be locking up families with children. And I think that is also there are legal restrictions on how many families could be held in detention for only three weeks. And there's a lot of really effective alternatives to detention systems that are more cost effective that really will make sure people um, show up in court. I think if you are an asylum seeker facing um, your asylum proceedings outside of detention, because there are some that are in detention, which is extremely complicated for them to have legal representation and to go through their cases. But if you are one that is outside of detention, you have six months after you um, submit your, your asylum request where you have to wait for work authorization. And this is one of the biggest challenges currently that we're facing in these communities where you have high numbers of asylum seekers, such as New York, Washington, Chicago, and elsewhere, is that those people can't work legally until they have that authorization. And so they're basically depending on social services, volunteers, people that are housing asylum seekers, including in, in different cities, and also working um, irregularly. And so I think there is that big challenge. This is something Congress has to change, though, not the administration. But there is that ability after six months to work. The other important part, and I think what Leon said is true, a lot of these individuals are arriving in the United States without the family ties and social networks that we've seen in other waves of, of migrants, and that it is taxing the system more. But you hear time and time again from these asylum seekers, they just want to come and they want to work. And mm -hmm. I think that is one of the biggest challenges is how do you speed up that ability for them to legally work and sustain themselves so they're not also a burden on the system. Leon, this is a political issue. Lawmakers, politicians have made it so. I'm interested to know, what do Americans feel about cross-border migrants? Broadly speaking, are they in favour or against people coming to the United States? I mean, this is the, the country is divided on this issue. And I think it also depends on if you look at it macro or micro, meaning on the macro level, probably you have, you know, half the country is appalled that the border is in the shape that it's in right now. And then another group will be of the, you know, of the mindset that it can be managed or fixed. And then on the micro level, you also will have people who say, well, this particular person is fine. It's the rest of them that are not fine. And so there's always these huge incongruences. But just generally, I cannot speak for all of America. I would just say you can't run an immigration system that disincentivizes legal immigration and incentivizes uh, uh, irregular migration, meaning just show up 
and and come. I mean, this this is the problem. The Biden administration tried with the CBP one app, with the asylum changes to the regulations, and all of that was 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 helpful in mm. steering. But the problem is people get impatient, as was described here, and they say, "I won't wait six seven months for the CBP app appointment. I want to arrive right now into the United States." and I understand sometimes the the, the the circumstances warrant it, but nevertheless, you have to have a situation where that's that's not made in such a sufficient manner, than such an easy manner, where people know if they can just tough it out for a few weeks, they'll be allowed into the interior of the United States because that does encourage more migration. It just it's, it's, it's a complicated situation. And okay, so it is It is a complicated situation. And apologies that we do have to leave it there. I'm sorry to cut you off, uh, Leon and no. Rebecca and Maureen, not giving you uh, the chance to reply to that. But we will continue this conversation in future programmes. I know it's going to continue to be an issue there, especially in this coming election year. So many thanks today to our guests, Rebecca Wolf, Leon Fresco and Maureen Meyer. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aichi, Victoria Gatenby, Abla Klaar and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Yasser Rahmani. The programme was edited by Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Connelly and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Friday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we're looking at some of the stories that define 2023. From drones in Ukraine to the rise of chat GPT. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.